I want to talk about something that's uh, very important. Matter of fact, I think uh, any pastor worth his salt will talk about this at one point or another in a series during the year. And that's b basically the question, do we know that our Christianity is authentic? You see, Jesus, when he began preaching, one of the very first things he did was he encouraged the religious leaders to look at the authenticity of the religion. He said, are you praying to be seen of men? Are you giving to be seen? Are you fasting to be seen? Is it all superficial or is it heart religion? religion? Uh, so often people become preoccupied with the actions and we forget the attitudes. And then Jesus shares this uh, very sobering parable that was given in the, and actually not a parable, a statement of truth, in uh, our scripture reading today, in Matthew chapter 7, he said in verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of my Father. Many, now don't miss when Jesus says many and few, because when he says many, he means majority. Many will come to me in that day saying, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name and cast out devils in your name and done many wonderful works in your name? And then they'll hear those terrifying words, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And they discover, to their astonishment, they thought they were saved, but they're not. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read that, that troubles me. I, I would hate to think that I would come to that point and then discover it wasn't real. And so we're going to ask that very important question today. Is my Christianity real? And is there a way to know? You know, um, one of the most deadly diseases in the world, and it's the most deadly disease in the world, well, it's the second most deadly disease in the world, is malaria. It's interesting. Smallest insect causes the, uh, the most deaths. Um, malaria has stopped armies. It infected several U.S. presidents. It stopped construction on the Panama Canal at one point. It still infests hundreds of millions of people every year. Karen and I in Uganda were a little worried because it was one of the most, uh, the country that struggles the most with malaria in Africa. And a child dies from malaria every 30 seconds, over a million people a year. But there's some good news. They just developed a new test to help them identify malaria very quickly. It's called an RDT, a rapid diagnostic test. And this has been one of the struggles, is being able to test it, identify it, and treat it. You know, the Bible tells us that if we are going to do something about uh, counterfeit Christianity, or if our Christianity isn't real, first you've got to identify that. Is that right? And so there's some preventative screening that happens. Now, I don't know if you've been to the doctor for a regular checkup, but if you go for a checkup, you don't always want to wait until you're sick and then go to the doctor. As you get a little older, they say, you ought to go do some preventative health screening. Um, Simple, something simple like a blood pressure check. You could prevent death by a simple test like that. Um, a blood test. They could tell you about your blood sugar. Diabetes, diabetes can kill a person. You can slip into a coma. Um, 
It could tell you about your cholesterol levels. It could help you prevent a heart attack. A whole scope of different things can be determined by that cancer. And so doing some preventative screening can save your life. How many of you have known somebody and, and they came down with some terrible terminal disease and then somebody will say, if they'd only had that checked a little sooner, they could have done something, but they waited too long. You ever heard that? They waited until it was too late. Right now, praise the Lord, if you're alive and hearing my voice, you probably have not grieved away the Holy Spirit, and it's not too late for you to ask those important and penetrating questions. questions. Is my Christianity real? Because there will come a time when it'll be too late. So now's the time to find out how sad it will be on that day to find out that you are self-deceived. That you, you figured, well, this was the world standard of Christianity and I measured up to the world standard and so I thought I was going to make it. But to hear the words from Jesus say, I'm sorry, I don't know you. I can't think of anything more frightening than that. And so if you're going to know, don't you want to know? And wouldn't you want to know soon enough to make a difference? Now, some people get angry when I talk like this. Uh, and uh, they reproach me and they say, Pastor Doug, you are so works behavior oriented. We are not supposed to be looking at ourselves. We're just supposed to be looking at Jesus. And it is true. A Christian principally wants to fix their eyes on Jesus. But what I'm saying to you is biblical. And we're a Bible church. Listen to what Paul says. 2 Corinthians 13.5 Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. There is a time for us to scrutinize, to test, to examine. I'm going to come back to this verse, but I want to show you it's not the only one because you need at least two or three witnesses here. Look, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 11:28, Paul talking about the Lord's Supper. He said, some people eat and drink the Lord's Supper unworthily to their own destruction. It's pretty serious. So how do you know? He says, but let a man examine himself, and so let him eat the bread and drink the cup. So there's to be a self-examination. And we're sometimes pretty good at examining each other. But who are we supposed to examine in this? Ourselves. Another verse. Psalm 159, sorry, Psalm 119, verse 59. There is no Psalm 159, just in case you were looking that up. Psalm 119, verse 59. I thought about my ways and turned my feet to your testimonies. That means he spent some time looking at his ways and said, oh, you know, I need to make a course correction here. Lamentations 3.40 Let us search out and examine our ways and turn back to the Lord. He's talking about a search. In the book of Haggai, chapter 1, verse 5 Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. So, do I have your support? that there is a time, the Bible says, that every now and then we ought to do a little bit of introspection. Look at our hearts. Look at our ways. Uh, you really need to look at your ways because your hearts can be deceitful. The human heart is utterly deceitful, the Bible says. And then figure out if there needs to be some changes. Now, you, you don't want to be driving a car looking in the rear view mirror all the time. The rear view mirror is there and it's very important, but if you spend all your time looking in the rearview mirror, you're going to have an accident. You've got to be looking where you're going. So principally, a Christian wants to be forward thinking. Amen? 
You want to look ahead. You want to keep your eyes on Jesus. You want to keep your eyes on the goal. But every now and then, you better check your mirrors. You better take, uh, get situational awareness is what they call it, and make sure that you're where you're supposed to be. You're not drifting into the wrong lane or someone's not coming up behind you going to plow into you. And so there needs to be a self-test. The heart needs to be changed. We need to know that we're converted. If our hearts are changed, if we are born again, there'll be a difference. And you read in the book Steps to Christ, if the heart has been renewed by the Spirit of God, the life will bear witness to the fact. So we're going to go through some simple tests. There are some tests. I heard one time about um, this mission organization that was placing missionaries in different parts of the world. They had a unique way of testing the missionaries. The candidate was told to arrive at 3 in the morning for the exam. 3 in the morning. And so there's one candidate. He came. At 3 in the morning, he went to the room where he was supposed to meet the examiner, and he waited there until 5 in the morning. Nobody there. So he waited a little longer until 8 in the morning. Finally, the examiner came in at 8 in the morning. He said, um, can you please spell the word baker for me? He said, baker, B-A-K-E-R. He said, very good said, now can you please tell me how much is two times two? He said, four. He said, very good. He said, I, I think that the mission board is going to accept you as a missionary. And he got up and he left. That afternoon, the examiner went and he met with the mission board. He said, you know that candidate that I had an appointment with? He said, I think he's going to make a good missionary. He said, I tested him on self-denial he got out of a warm bed on a cold night while I know he was still tired, and he came. So I tested him on patience. I made him then wait from 3 in the morning until 8 in the morning before I showed up. I then tested him on humility. I asked him questions that any child would understand, and he was not offended. Then I asked him a simple equation of addition, and he answered it, correctly <laughs> and politely. And he said, he's got what it takes to be a missionary. It's going to require self-denial, perseverance, patience, humility. And so there were tests. Well, there are tests in the Bible. There, if you're saying, Doug, how do I know if my Christianity is real? I want to know. Can I know? Good news. There's a test. The Bible actually gives you several tests. And in the next two weeks, I thought I'd fit it in one message, but as the week went on, I thought, no, I can do this in two weeks. Next two weeks, we're going to talk about what are those tests. There'll be about 14 different questions. So how do you know if you're a real Christian? Number one, you're going to start right with the most important, love. Do you love the Lord supremely? What's the great commandment? Love the Lord with a little bit of your heart. What percentage? 85%. Isn't that greedy that God would want 100%? Thou shalt love the Lord with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind. And this is a test. Gospel of John, chapter 14, verse 23. Jesus said, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come and make our abode with him. He that does not love me does not keep my word. So what's one of the criteria for loving the Lord? Keeping his word. 
1 John 2, 15 and 16, if anyone loves the world, meaning more than Jesus, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, it's not from the Father, but it's from the world. How do you know that you love something? At breakfast one morning, a boy said to his father, I'm going to get married to that girl. Father said, you're going to marry her? Why are you going to marry her? He says, because I'm in love. Well, how do you know you love her? Are you sure that you love her? He said, I'm sure I love her. How do you know you love her? So, well, last night on the front porch when I kissed her goodnight, I didn't even know that her dog bit me till I got home. <laughs> it was all-consuming love. And so, when you love the Lord, you know it. Now, you might be thinking, Pastor Doug, I don't know if I love the Lord enough. You know, this, isn't, um, this test isn't designed to say that um, there isn't room for growth. You may be in a saved condition and that doesn't mean you don't still have room to grow because everybody who is in a saved condition still has room to grow. Is that right? So don't be discouraged because if you were to ask me right now, should you love the Lord more? I'd say absolutely. I, I'm sometimes amazed how little I love God, but I do love God. We want to love Him more, don't we? Because the better you love Him, the better you'll serve Him. So you've got to have love. And you need to love Him more than the world is the test. James 4.4, 4, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So we're going to have a struggle going on and one of the principal tests is do we love the Lord? Now what if we find, Lord, I don't love you as much as I should? Or maybe some of you are thinking, you know, I love the Lord, but I used to love Him more. When I first became a Christian, I was ready to do anything, go anywhere. Jesus wanted me to go. I was so grateful when I realized He died for me on the cross. Well, there's hope. Jesus speaking to the church in Ephesus, He said in Revelation 2:4, Nevertheless, I have something against you in that you've left your first love. He didn't say you don't love me anymore. You just don't love me the way you first did. A lot of couples might say that too. Remember therefore, so what's the solution? Remember from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works or else I'll come to you quickly and remove your candlestick from its place. Now I want you to notice something that in the verse that's really the foundation for this whole sermon, 2 Corinthians 13, 5, he said, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith, whether you're in the faith. What does that mean? There's a possibility that you might think you are and you're not. So how do you know? Test. Now there's two words he uses. Examine and then he says test. And the word examine means to carefully test. And the word test means to scrutinize. And if you go back to the original words, when it's talking about evaluating if you're in the faith or not, it's like if you were to um, say, I'm going to do a, um, a test of this country. I'm going to write a book about the U.S. And so I'm going to um, take a, a picture of the U.S. I'm going to write a book about it. Now, if you want to write a book about the U.S., you need to go through the U.S. Last week, Karen and Nathan drove from Atlanta to California. They can now write a book. They've been through the U.S. Uh, so when you are testing yourself, go through yourself. You ever shop for a car? I don't know about you, but when that happens, half the fun of a, a new car for me is shopping. Before I even buy it, I have fun doing the research. 
Now you can get online and there's all these tools and you can, you can line up all the different models that are comparisons. You can find a horsepower, horsepower, gas, economy, or comfort, all the different, I just love doing that stuff. And then you go and you walk around it and as soon as you walk in a car lot, you know, they're, they're circling. <laughs> and there you think, oh, there's nobody here. You get out of your car. Five people show up and they're very nice. And uh, you start asking them a few questions and you walk around, you kick the tiles, you look at the sticker, you have a heart attack, <laughs> right? And then um, if you're really interested, you, you don't walk in and say, okay, let's sign on the bottom line. Even the salesman would be shocked if you didn't say, let's take it for a drive. There's one dealership I know, they said, we'll let you even keep it overnight. And I thought, well, well, that sounds pretty good. Take it for a drive. So when you're testing yourself, the Word is talking about really taking a serious, honest look uh, in and around your heart and your life and find out, am I measuring up? So one thing is, do I really love the Lord? Another test is not only loving God, it's hating evil. How did you know Job was uh, a man of God? says there was a perfect and upright man. So Job's a good example, right? Job's going to be in heaven. says he loved the Lord and he hated evil. It's not just loving the right things, it's hating the wrong things. And the longer you walk with the Lord, the more you will hate sin. You've heard it said before, the, the longer I live, the more I know I don't know. Right? It's also true, the longer you walk with the Lord, the more sinful sin will appear. If you're drifting from God, the more you begin to accommodate and ignore sin. So does sin grieve you is one of the tests. Uh, does sin hurt you because you know sin hurts God? If you doubt that, look at the cross. Does sin grieve you? They had a deadly Ebola virus that went through Sierra Leone and a couple of other countries. I see Dr. DeRose is here. He wrote a book about it. What, where else? Sierra Leone and what were the other countries? Liberia? Yeah, or in the area over there. And uh, did you ever see when they were treating that, how the people had to dress? They had between 50 and 70 percent of the people that contracted it died. That'd be pretty serious. So if you knew that you're taking care of somebody that's sick, and if you get what they've got, you got a 50 to 70 percent chance of dying, would you put on the protective gear? That's the attitude we ought to have about sin is you don't want to get near it. You, you don't want to touch it. You know that it's deadly. You know that it hurts Jesus and that it hurts you and that it hurts others. And a great commandment, love the Lord, love your neighbor, love yourself. Sin is the opposite of that. Sin hurts God, it hurts others, and it hurts you. And so you've got to recognize sin as an awful thing that it is. Ezra, you ever read about this? In Ezra chapter 9, verse 3, when Ezra heard about the terrible things that some of the people were doing, he said, I tore my garment and my robe. I plucked out some of my hair. That explains my condition. And beard and sat down astonished. He was so grieved. And it wasn't even his sin. It was the sin of the people. You've probably seen that every time you go in and you order a Subway sandwich, assuming you sometimes do that, that uh, between customers they keep changing their gloves to just make sure that the sandwich is sanitary and safe and they're not spreading anything. And, and I was a little offended one time when they were real busy and 
they were making someone ahead of me a ham sandwich, and they're just digging their fingers down in that ham. And then they said, I said, I want the veggie, and I saw them stick their hammy fingers in the vegetables. And I, I recoiled <laughs> at that. Am I the only one that's... <laughs> Thank you. You know, that's how it should be with sin. It's like you we're revolted by it. David, when he realized about his sin, he said, I had sinned. He says, therefore he pleaded with God. He fasted. He laid on his face all night for seven days because of the sin. Now we live in a sin-saturated world. And you can get used to it. And that's dangerous. Romans 7.13, Paul said, Sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me, through what is good, so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. We want to understand the, Paul said, you know, as before I was converted, I thought I was a great Pharisee, and then sin revived and I died. I saw myself for what I really am. Sometimes it's only in the light of the cross we see how bad sin is, and so that I think is an accurate test. Another verse, Isaiah 33, 15, he who walks righteously and speaks uprightly, who despises the gain of oppressions, who gestures with his hands refusing bribes, who stops his ears from hearing of bloodshed, he shuts his eyes from seeing evil. Sounds like a fanatic, but listen to what Isaiah says. He will dwell on high with the Lord. The person who is offended, they plug their ears hearing of violence. They shake their hands when someone tries to bribe them. They cover their eyes from seeing evil. You know what that's called? That's trying to be holy in a wicked world. You'll have an attitude where you'll understand something about the sinfulness of sin. Now you might think, well Pastor Doug, that makes me feel bad. How long are we supposed to be that way? You know, it's, it's actually a good sign. The closer you come to the Lord, the Lord is light. The Bible says God is light and in Him is no darkness. So the closer you come to the Lord, the closer you come to the light, the more painfully distinct every spot of defilement comes in your character. You can read something about that in the book Steps to Christ, verse 29. One gleam of the purity of Christ penetrating the soul lays bare the deformity and defects of the human character. So as you continue to walk closer with the Lord, you may spot more and more wrong with your life. That doesn't mean you're not saved. Really, it's, it's a test. Are you still sensitive about sin? Or have you gotten where you're just not bothered by it anymore because through overexposure you become numb. It's like a person who lives by the railroad track and they just don't hear the train anymore, right? Or you're in the, the uh, flight path of an airport, you don't even notice. Friends are visiting, the whole house is shaking as a jet comes in for landing and you go, what noise? You just don't hear it. Or a teenager who learns to sleep through the alarm clock, it wakes up everybody in the house. But it doesn't wake them up kind of frightening. That's where you get to the point where you're grieving away the Holy Spirit when you're not convicted by sin. is a dangerous thing. So that's one of the tests. And so that's test number two. Number three, do I obey Jesus as Lord? We often call Him our Savior and some say Lord and Savior. Well what is a Lord? A Lord is someone who gives commands and you obey no matter how difficult those commands might be. Now this is a Bible test. 1 John 1.6 If we say we have fellowship with Him and we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. John 14.15 He said, if you love me, you know that. 
Keep my commandments. Amen? 1 John 2, verse 3 through 6. Now by this we know him. If we keep his commandments, he who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. And what's the reason for keeping it? The love of God. By this we know that we are in him. Notice the wording here. Paul said, let us examine ourselves whether we are in the faith, whether we are in Christ. John tells us, here's a test. By this we know if we are in him. He that says he abides in him ought himself to walk as he walked. Uh, being a Christian is not accepting theories. It's doing tough things that involve self-sacrifice because you say, this is what Jesus would do. That's sometimes hard. He said, you've got to take up a cross. I remember hearing about this Prussian war that was taking place between the French and the Prussians. And this one soldier named Pierre was standing by his cannon. And the general, Noel, came over to him. And he was looking through his little spy telescope at the enemy surrounding Paris. And he said, uh, Pierre, you see that bridge? You see the house on the hill by the woods by that bridge? Is that house is full of Prussian snipers. I want you to aim your cannon at that house and blow that house to smithereens. And he saw the blood drain from Pierre's face. But obediently, he took a mortar and he put it in the cannon and he accurately calibrated and aimed it and he set it off and he fired that ancient cannonball, blew the house up. And then he could see that uh, he said, good shot, the commander said, Pierre. Pierre was shaken. I said, what's the problem? He said, uh, General, he said, that actually was my house and it's all I owned in the world. They had occupied my house. I had to blow up my house. But when the commander gave the order, he did whatever he was told to do. And Jesus said, you've got to love him more than father, mother, sister, brother, husband, wife, houses or lands, whatever it is. He needs first place in your life. But what do you get when you do that? Do you get everything else? Being a real Christian means that you obey the Lord. You're not just a hearer of the word. James 1, chapter 1, verse 22. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Oh, that's what I don't want, friends. I don't want to come and stand before the Lord in that day. You, what you think of me doesn't matter at all. Do you know that? I mean, there's days I care. <laughs> but in the big picture, it, it doesn't matter. What's really going to matter is what does he think? Isn't that right? What you promise me doesn't matter. What he promises me is what matters. And if I stand before him and he says, I don't know you because I've deceived myself. James says, here's one of the ways you could deceive yourself is thinking if I've got the words, I don't need the deeds. He said, if you're not a doer of the word and only a hearer, you're deceiving yourself. For anyone who is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who observes his face in a mirror he observes himself and goes away and immediately forgets what kind of man he is. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty, meaning the commandments, and continues in it, not being a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be cursed? No. He'll be blessed. You want to be blessed? There's also blessings that come with the commandments. Now, is God asking us to keep 80%? 
Do we get a 10% discount and he just wants 90%? Some churches think 90% is all you need. Or does the Lord say, Deuteronomy chapter 5, I think it's verse 29, Oh, that my people would fear me and keep all of my commandments always that it might be well with them. That's a blessing. And their children forever. He's calling us to obey all that we know. And he promises you'll be blessed. This is how you separate the genuine from the counterfeit. Now, I'm not saying that you're not a real Christian if you sin. Is that clear? The Bible makes that clear. You look at 1 John 1.8, the same guy who said you need to be in a doer of the word and obey. He said, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Now he's talking to the church there. But what's the difference for the true Christian? What has dominion? Paul says, do not let sin reign. Reign is on the throne. Do not let sin have dominion over you. Sin should not control your life. There should be no area of your life where the devil has a regular foothold. It doesn't mean that we don't fall. It doesn't mean we don't make mistakes. You have to apply these tests and you'll understand. There are fruits of sin. It's adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousy, outbursts of wrath. You have an anger problem? Selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, evil murders, drunkenness, revelry, and the like. Those are called the, the fruits of the flesh. He says, let all fornication and uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named once among you as fitting for saints. So there ought to be a difference in the life of the saints. Whoever says, I know him and does not keep his commandments, he says is a liar. All right, test number four. Talked about loving God. Who else are you supposed to love? Your neighbor. Do you love your neighbor? Now, this is very important. Jesus said that his followers will be known by love. By this all people will know that we are his disciples by our love for one another. And um, this is crucial if we're going to be genuine Christians. Um, First John 4.20 If anyone says, I love God, and he hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother who he has seen, how can he love God who he has not seen? And this is the commandment that we have of him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. So is that clear or is that ambiguous? I should say unambiguous. Again, Jesus said, everyone who is angry with his brother without cause is liable of judgment. We're supposed to love our brothers. Um, Matthew chapter 6, verse 14 if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So one of the tests is not only do you just love people, do you care about the needs of others? Do you have sympathy and compassion in your heart for others? Uh, do the, uh, the crying need of poverty and the problems in the world when people don't know the gospel, are, do you feel concerned for your fellow man? But have you forgiven people. You know, Jesus said that this is the benchmark. He said, you're going to come to my altar and ask for mercy, but you've got anger in your heart for someone else. Jesus says, what? Leave your gift at the altar. Go be reconciled with your brother, then bring your gift. The Bible says you should love your neighbor, and the Bible says you should love your enemy. I think that it's interesting 
that he says love your neighbor which is your nigh brother and then he says love your enemy and it is possible that's because so often in the Bible your nigh brother becomes your enemy. You notice the biggest problems in the Bible was with friendly fire. Joseph's brothers sell him. David's son hunts him. David's king tries to kill him. You often find the disciples are arguing among themselves which of them is the greatest. Sometimes it's those closest and there are people who are married for years to people that they feel like they're enemies. What could be closer than a spouse? So part of salvation is loving and forgiving those that are close to you. That would be brothers and sisters in the church. What's going to do the most for evangelism? All men will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. In the early church they would marvel. They'd say, see how they love each other. And so this is one of the criteria. Do we have that primitive Christian love? Have we forgiven others? You know, uh, one of Abraham Lincoln's early political rivals was a man named Edwin Stanton. And he was just absolutely vicious in his attacks of Lincoln for his politics. He called Lincoln an ape, a gorilla. He called him terrible things. Well, when Lincoln became president, he said, I want Stanton to be the Secretary of War. And everyone said, are you kidding? He's your worst enemy. He said, yeah, but he's the best man for the job and I've forgiven him. You know who spoke at Lincoln's funeral? Stanton. And he said, here lies the most perfect ruler of men the world has ever seen. Because Lincoln knew how to forgive. And he knew that he put into practice the things that he saw in the Bible. Peter said, 1 Peter 4.8, above all things have fervent love for one another for love will cover a multitude of sins. You know, I think this is so important because I always want the extra credit. Here's a test. You want, you know, this is a quiz. Here's when you get extra credit. If you love and forgive others, you seem to get extra credit. And in the judgment, doesn't the Lord say, He'll not say, did you not commit adultery? Did you not kill? Did you not steal? Those things are important. But He said, I was hungry, did you feed me? I was naked, did you clothe me? And so he's asking, did, did you love your brother? That's so important. So that's an extra credit question, just in case you were looking for one. Where is your treasure? Question number five. And if you're keeping track, I'm only going to do seven today. Jesus said, lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moss nor rust corrupts, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be. Where is your heart? Where is your treasure? You can quickly tell where a person's priority is if you could just peek at their ledger, peek at their checkbook. You can see what their priorities are. If they've always got plenty for their personal interests and they never have anything for God's work and for people in need, that's where their, their heart is. It'll be reflected. Isn't that right? No one can serve two masters. These are the words of Christ. For either he will love one and hate the other, he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And what happens with people who end up serving money? Does it ever really bring them the lasting satisfaction? You know, Howard Hughes was a contemporary of my dad. They were both in the airline business at the same time. Howard Hughes owned TWA. My dad actually owned Western Airlines. They knew each other. They did not like each other. Um, Howard Hughes wrote my mom, my mom was a model, and he wrote her a note and asked her if she wanted to go out on a date. But at that point she was married to my dad. 
She used to wonder. <laughs> she married the wrong one. Of course, I want to be here now. <laughs> but um, in 1966, at the age of 60, Howard Hughes was the world's wealthiest man. He also lived in constant fear of contagious disease. He insisted the people who worked with him frequently wash their hands and wear white gloves. He'd even burn his own clothing, fearing that he'd been around somebody and he might contract an illness. He was personally filthy. He never bathed. He never brushed his teeth. They eventually rotted out. He wore tissue boxes on his feet. He never cut his hair. His nails grew grotesquely long. Toward the end of his life, he was daily injecting codeine and taking Valium. He had once been six feet four inches. He just ate candy bars during the day. His frame shrank to about 90 pounds. Finally, when flying to a hospital in 1976, interesting, he was a pilot. He died in an airplane of kidney failure. The FBI insisted on taking fingerprints to confirm that this pitiful shell of a man was once the legendary tycoon aviator. Had all the money in the world. And he, he died, he looked like a homeless person. What profit is it if you gain the whole world and lose your soul? And yet some people have been hypnotized by the advertising of our world into thinking that happiness is going to come from stuff. We have more stuff in the world than we've ever had and people aren't any happier. Matter of fact, some of the happiest people in the world live in the South Pacific and they have almost nothing. But I've discovered that they smile as much as people anywhere. Happiness does not come from money. Where is your treasure? Do you want to know where your heart is? If you're ready for the Lord's coming, if you know what's the solution, if you know that spiritually you are poor and wretched, miserable, blind and naked, then Jesus said he can make you rich. You've got to understand your spiritual, spiritual poverty and he can give you the riches. Another test, this one you already knew, what are the fruits? Jesus said you'll know them by the fruit. What kind of fruit are you bearing in your life? What kind of, um, what's he, output. Galatians 5.22, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You're not saved by your works, but your fruit is going to tell whether or not you are saved. Do you have the fruits of the Spirit? If the Holy Spirit is in your life, you're saved. If you're being led by the Spirit, you're saved. And what is the fruit of the Holy Spirit ruling in your life? It's going to be all those good things. Galatians tells us that. And then Matthew chapter 7 said, Do men gather figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree will bear good fruit. You want to know if you're real or not? What kind of fruit? A bad tree has bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. By their fruits you'll know them. You ever heard the expression, if it swims like a duck, if it waddles like a duck, if it paddles like a duck, if it flies like a duck, if it quacks like a duck, what is it? It's a duck. Isn't that right? And so you start applying some of these tests and you say, does he talk like a Christian? Does he spend like a Christian? Does he love like a Christian? Does he or she obey like a Christian? That's a Christian. Do you have the fruits? You know what else? Jesus doesn't just say you're supposed to have the right fruits. You're supposed to have lots of them. He says, every branch that abides in me will bear much fruit. 
So you might say, well, I got a little love, and I do make a little donation, and I do, you know, everybody, I mean, you know, even the people in jail obey God some of the time. So you're going to find a little bit of good and everything. But Christians should have much fruit in their lives. Amen? You might be surprised. Where do you think you would find the most productive grapevine in the world? France, Spain, or Napa? None of them. England. In wet, freezing England, you get the most productive. It's a grapevine that has been in a greenhouse since 1768. It's hundreds of years old. It's 13 feet around at its base, the vine. Its longest branch is 120 feet. And one year, bumper crop, 2001, this one grapevine produced 845 pounds of delicious black desert grapes. You know why? It's being very tenderly cared for by specialists in viticulture. It's pruned, it's watched over, it's watered, it's fertilized because it's nurtured, it's abundantly fruitful. And if we will be examining and guarding our lives and nurturing our lives by feeding on the right kind of food, we're going to have the fruits of the Spirit also. Amen? Last point I'm going to share with you today. Another test, number seven. Do you share Christ with others? That's very simple. Um, if you believe those who know Jesus have everlasting life, and those who don't know Jesus have everlasting death. And you don't care about sharing that with anybody. It probably means you either don't believe it or you don't care about them. If you don't care about them, you're probably lost because <laughs> you don't love your brother. And if you don't believe it, you're probably lost. And so, am I going too far in saying that there's really no such thing as a Christian that is not interested in sharing the gospel. You're either interested in sharing the gospel or you're backslidden. Because if you really love your neighbor, first of all, it's good news and you can't keep it to yourself. You're going to want to share it with other people. Now, not everyone's an evangelist and not everyone has opportunity or skills or, or knows how to do the People can be praying for the lost. People can be investing and helping others find salvation. But that's one of the criteria, is that we're sharing the good news. Jesus said, Luke 12, 8, everyone who acknowledges me before men, do not deny your relationship with Christ. You might say, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I'm, I'm a secret Christian. There is no such thing as a secret Christian. If you are a secret Christian, either the secret will destroy your Christianity or your Christianity will someday destroy the secret. You won't be able to keep it in, you'll tell people. It doesn't last that way. He said, if you're ashamed of me, the Son of Man will be ashamed of you. If you don't ever want to tell anybody about me, then I won't tell my Father and my angels about you. But if you confess me in this enemy territory, I will confess your name in heaven. Isn't that good news? If you're not afraid to risk ridicule and risk embarrassment by asking someone or talking to someone about Jesus, he said, if you speak up for me, first of all, you'll be surprised. More people are interested than you might think. He said, the harvest is great, the labors are few. Secondly, he said, I will confess your name before my Father and the angels in heaven. Just like you see it happening in the book of Job. 
And so, do you share Jesus? Are you interested in seeing others saved? Psalm 51, 12. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with your generous spirit. Then, when you're saved, I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. 2 Timothy 1.8 Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. Don't be ashamed of Jesus. Psalm 119 verse 46 I will speak of your testimonies also before kings and I will not be ashamed. 1 Peter 3.15 Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give a defense to anyone that asks the reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. We should be armed and ready all the time to say something for Jesus. Like I said, we may not know the pastor who baptized me. He was a missionary in Burma. His name was Joseph Phillips. He used to love telling me the story. I heard him tell it ten times, so I never forgot. He said he had one man in, in the village that became a Christian where he worked in Burma. His name was Flower, Precious Flower. He always thought that was a very interesting name for a man. It would be a tough name here. But uh, I guess there it wasn't that tough. Uh, well, these days it would be an acceptable name. But, it, it, but anyway, back then it was a tough name. And he said he couldn't read, but he said he brought more people to the Lord because he'd bring a Bible to different people in his community in their language. And he said, but he knew where in the Bible all the verses, all the proof texts were marked for salvation. He said, oh, I can't read. This is a wonderful, could you read this verse to me? And they'd read it to him and say, oh, that's, get, over on this page, he had the pages marked, could you read this one to me? And he had people reading to him, studying themselves into the truth. And they said, well, this is, well, what, where's this book? This is wonderful. Where are these, us oh, as a Christian teaching, you want to come with me to church? Pastor will tell you more about the book. And he kept bringing people to the Lord, and he couldn't even read. But he, he had a way of doing it. So if precious flower can do that, <laughs> what is your excuse? Everybody can do something. I heard about a man on a commuter train in Long Island years ago, and he was a regular. He was on the five o'clock local that was going from uh, Jamaica to Long Island. And, and uh, when the plane, train finally took off, he'd go make his way up to the front. He was always dressed very nicely. And he'd walk uh, down the aisle. And if he saw anybody with glasses or he saw anybody with a cane, he'd say, if you have a problem with your eyes, he said, you've got to go see this doctor. I was losing my vision. And he saved my sight. He had cards. He'd go to the doctor's office and he'd take these cards from the eye doctor. He says, I was going blind and he gave me my sight. So oh, you got to see. And he just was telling everybody about this Dr. Gall was his name, who was a specialist in eyes. He could not keep it to himself because he was so happy about what had happened to him. And that's one of the tests. If you love your brother, if you're sharing your faith, that's a sign of a new Christian. Now, probably a good thing I'm breaking this up in a couple of weeks because it's about all we can handle for one session, right? But don't be discouraged. I remember years ago when uh, I was taking my pilot's test. It's been now about 40 years ago. And uh, I, yeah, I had to do a little here, a little there, and so I kind of took my pilot training two different places in Texas and one place in New Mexico. But finally when I got my license, I was in Lubbock, Texas. I still remember because I see his name in my logbook. He signed it off. John Couch was his name. Guy was like six foot four and he would fold himself up into the seat of this little tomahawk trainer. And uh, he would teach me and I always was worried because he was so big. I thought if this thing's going to be overloaded, it's just you that's doing it. And uh, 
But I felt pretty confident doing my flight training. I thought, wow, you know, brother's a pilot, stepbrother's a pilot, father's a pilot. We won't, what, you know, they can learn, I can learn it, right? And then one day after we had, you know, did all my ground school and I had my first 40 hours behind me, he did some touch and goes or whatever and he climbed out of the plane. I said, where are you going? He said, you're going to solo. I said, wait, panic came over me. I thought, oh no. I was really scared. Because flying, while, you know, in many ways it's safer than other modes of transportation, is extremely unforgiving if you make a mistake. If you're doing your test drive and you panic, you just pull over and you put it in park in a car. You can't do that in a plane. Once you're off the ground, you've got to put it down on the ground, and there's a lot involved in doing that. And so when he got out of the plane, I'm going, all of a sudden I lost all my confidence, went into a spin. He said, don't worry, you'll do fine. And he said, look, look at your checklist, and he said, I'll be watching you, and I'll be on the radio. Got a problem? Call me. I'll talk you in. And so with that little bit of reassurance, I let him close the door and I said a number of prayers. <laughs> I taxied, taking off. I wasn't worried about taking off. They kind of take off by themselves if you gun the engine. Taking off and I flew the pattern a couple of times and, and uh, I talked to him once or twice on the radio. You know, I said, yeah, 5-2 Echo November, downwind. And he said, you're doing fine. No, straight and level, everything's okay. And the little airport out in Lubbock, nobody was there except me. If it was a busy airport, I would have really been scared. But just knowing I had the checklist, and everything said check, 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 check on the list before I took off. Then you got a checklist for landing. You go through the list that you've learned. You got to check your prop, you check your fuel, you, you go through the carburetor heat, and you got your little list, flaps on. And I just went through the list that said, everything's green. Hearing him on the radio, I survived, as you already knew. You know, I never understood why pilots would say, any landing you walk away from is a good landing. I wasn't satisfied with that. That sounds like you wrecked the plane and you walked away. I wanted to survive and save the plane if possible. And so, yeah, I, I learned to do it because I had that checklist and I knew I could always call out to the flight instructor. And you know, when you're flying, even Karen and I, the years we were flying around town here, as soon as we take off, I'd call Sacramento Approach, 5 to Echo November, and they said, we've got you. And just knowing that someone's there watching. So the Lord is not trying to, you ever have a teacher try to give you a surprise test so they could flunk you and show you who's boss? They wanted to show everybody how little you knew. So, I mean, uh, hopefully not too many teachers like that, but I think we all felt like we had a teacher that's trying to prove we're dumb. And they'd spring a test on us and surprise us and not know, help us know what's on the test. Jesus is not trying to flunk you. Jesus wants to pass you. He wants you to make it. He's telling you what the questions are. Do you know, I, um, I dropped out of high school, but I got a GED. Do you know how I passed my GED? Maybe they're going to take it back once I tell you this. <laughs> they actually provide a book that tells you every question that could be on your GED test. Now it's actually got four or five different tests, at least they did back then. So I didn't know which test they were going to give me, but it had every question that might appear on the GED. I went through the book and I memorized all the answers. <laughs> and I still barely made it. <laughs> but it was great that they provided the answers. 
you can get to heaven because God has given you the test questions and he's given you the answers. I don't know about you friends, but when that day comes, I don't want to find out too late that I didn't have the real thing. I want to be a real Christian, don't you? There's a lot of counterfeits in the world today and we want to be real. We want the Holy Spirit to be poured out. And we can get closer, we can do better, and the Lord is sharing these things with us now because He wants us to pass the test. How many of you want to pass the test when Jesus comes? We're here on the beautiful coast of the island of Puerto Rico, and if you were to travel east about 2,000 miles, of course, you'd be out in the middle of the ocean but you'd also be in the middle of a mystical sea called the Saragasso Sea. It gets its name because of this common brown seaweed that can be found floating in vast mats. The area of the Saragasso Sea is about 700 miles wide and 2,000 miles long. Now the seaweed itself is fascinating stuff. It was first observed and called gulf weed by Christopher Columbus. It gets the name sargum from the Portuguese. Some people use it as herbal remedies. But out in the middle of the Saragasso Sea, the water is some of the bluest in the world. It's there you can see 200 feet deep in places. It also has a great biodiversity and ecosystem that surrounds the Saragasso Sea. For years, scientists wondered where the American and the Atlantic eels were breeding. They knew the adult eels swam down the rivers out into the Atlantic, but they never could find the place where they reproduced. Finally, they discovered it was out in the middle of the Saragasso Sea. So it's a fascinating place, but if you were an ancient sailor, you did not want to get stuck there. Being caught in the doldrums was extremely difficult for the ancient sailors. Of course, their boats were driven by wind and sail, and they'd be caught in the vast mats of the seaweed that would wrap around their rudder, barnacles would begin to grow. It's an area that is notorious for light and baffling winds, and so they'd make no progress. They'd get stuck. The men would become extremely dispirited. Sometimes violence and even insanity would break out as people were trapped in the doldrums. Well, friends, perhaps sometimes you felt that you're trapped in the doldrums. You've gone through episodes of depression. You feel like you're going in circles. Life seems stifling. You know, the Bible offers good news. There is a way out. The Bible talks about a famous character that was trapped in a cycle of depression. He was low as you could be. Matter of fact, he even had seaweed wrapped around his head. His name was Jonah. But God gave him a way of escape. In Jonah chapter 2, verse 3 through 7, we read, For you cast me into the depths, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All of your billows and your waves passed over me. Then I said, I have been cast out of your sight. Yet I will look again towards your holy temple. The waters surrounded me, even to my soul. The deep closed around me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I went down to the moorings of the mountains. The earth with its bars closed behind me forever. Yet you brought my life up from the pit. O oh Lord, my God, when my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer went up to you into your holy temple. You know, friends, the way that Jonah got out of his discouraging circumstances, he turned to God and he prayed. And if God could hear Jonah's prayer, just think about it. He was as far away from God as anybody could be. He was in the belly of a sea monster in the bottom of the ocean in the dark, yet he turned to God and God heard his prayer. You know, these ancient sailors, when they were trapped on the deck of a ship for weeks, stuck in the doldrums, discouraged, 
Sometimes they would have a prayer meeting and pray that God would send a breeze that would set them free and get their boats moving. They turned to God in prayer and often miracles would happen and the wind would flutter in the sails and bring them out of their seaweed prison. Friends, maybe you have been stuck in the doldrums. Maybe you've been caught in a cycle of depression. If God can do it for Jonah, if he can do it for the ancient sailors, he can do it for you. Turn to the Lord in prayer. Trust his spirit to blow through your soul and to set you free. Friends, one of the amazing things that you'll often find in the South Pacific Islands, like here on Fiji, is the vivai plant. Now in North America, if you want to build a fence, you've got to get fence posts, and then you put the wooden fence posts in the ground, and then after a few years, they're going to rot and break off, unless they're specially treated. But here, they've got these trees, the vivai tree. They can cut them right out of the woods. They'll take a stick, they stick it in the ground, and because they have so much rain and precipitation, it begins to sprout and turns into a living fence post. It makes up its mind that it's gonna flourish wherever you stick it, which is a good lesson for you and me. So you might wonder sometimes if you've got a purpose in life. You might feel like you're growing sort of sporadically in every direction. And then along comes this person who cuts you down and carries you off, he sticks you in the ground, but you look back and you say, there was a plan, there was a purpose. God knows how to teach us how to prosper where he plants us. You might wonder why the Lord has put you where he has in life, but you can put down roots and you can grow and you can serve a great purpose for God. You know, it's like God says in Jeremiah chapter 29, I know the plans that I've got for you to give you a future. God has a purpose for your life, friends, and he can help you to prosper and grow wherever you're planted. Let's face it, it's not always easy to understand everything you read in the Bible. With over 700,000 words contained in 66 books, the Bible can generate a lot of questions. To get biblical, straightforward answers, call into Bible Answers Live, a live nationwide call-in radio program where you can talk to Pastor Doug Batchelor and ask him your most difficult Bible questions. For times and stations in your area or to listen to answers online, visit bal.amazingfacts.org.